This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, Tom Hanks. I'd been attempting to interview the two-time Oscar winner for years, and it finally came together in 2020 when he joined me from his home in Greece. Considered to be one of the biggest names in Hollywood, Hanks opens up about everything from the mentality of an actor. I was damn good. I popped that scene. To the iconic roles he's had along the way. He said, hey, look, I know what you're trying to do, but we, we're not going to use any of these first three days because I don't, I don't think you have it. He also shares the challenges he faced as a parent. I thought, oh, I, I, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't be a worse couldn't be a worse father and I couldn't be a worse human being. And explains how his own childhood was shaped by a family tragedy. He happened to witness the death, the, the murder of his father in a fight. Plus, the avid baseball fan receives a question from an unexpected sports star. It's like having Joe DiMaggio ask you a question. But we get started with the discussion about his process and preparation. Uh, you said once, you get to a point as an actor where you realize you're examining an aspect of the human condition as opposed to just a story that starts on page one and ends on page 20. And to do that, you have to have some other stuff that's loaded up inside you. The stuff that happened before the movie began. You don't have to sit down and write it in longhand in single space on spiral notebooks, but it has to be a very tangible thing because it has to play out in every scene. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, what I what I mean is, it's the actor's job is I think is to is to provide his own motivation. The actor himself, I think, has to has to be able to go anywhere and do anything on a moment's notice in the course of the scene. I liken a lot to kind of like Joe DiMaggio in Center Field. He has to be ready somewhere before the pitch is thrown to go in any direction, fast, slow, loping as fast as one can, infield, outfield. As an actor, our task is to embody the truth of the moment. Um, and sometimes the truth of the moment is to get a laugh, and sometimes it's to kiss a girl, but other times it's to, it's to capture, like lightning, uh, a, a fraction of a moment of, of true human behavior. You know, Hamlet says, you know, the actor's job is to hold the mirror up to nature. That's a noble pursuit, and it's not easy to do. I'm 64 years old, and I've been doing this professionally since I was, really, since I was 20. So I've got, how many years is that? I've got uh, 44 years of slow, slow progress of, of figuring out what this was, how to do this. And um, unfortunately, uh, there's no answer except you just got to go there. How true is it every time you would take a job, you would lose sleep over it? the oh. night you made the decision oh still do absolutely still do uh it's uh it, as soon as you as soon as you have that date on the calendar where you're going to have to show up and put on clothes that are not your own and pretend you're somebody that you're not you're you're running the great risk it's a big high wire act uh, because the, the, you got a 50 50 chance that you're gonna that you're gonna fail that you're not you're not going to be there. Any movie you go through is is an emotional ER, man. You you you're 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 being whipped back and forth between moments where if you don't get it on that day, on that moment, it's not in the movie. <laughs> so, you better you better be there. The only thing you can do is stretch yourself to a limit and hope you come back.
And as soon as I start a movie, as soon as I ever, as soon as it begins, there's there, certainly there's the exciting element of it, because, but that element is, is a, one of danger. Are you going to be able? Are you going to be able to do it? Are you going to be able to look at yourself? And I, I still look at films, and I think there's there's moments where I go like that over the over the uh, over the TV or the the screen because I don't I don't need to see myself be so disappointing. And this goes back to earlier days where you think, man, you're driving home at the end of the day, or you're back at the hotel, and you think, ah, oh, man, I cracked it today, man. I was damn good. I Pop that scene, man. I had the dialogue. I had the motivation. I was flexible. I crushed it. And then you see the movie and it's a big fat nothing. Nothing works. Nothing's real. Oh, yeah. Happens all the time. And the the inverse happens as well. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not sure I even knew what that scene was about after we talked about it at the end of the day. I mean, did did I even come close to getting there what it was supposed to? I don't know. I don't know. Ah, well, if it's not any good, it won't be in the movie. And then it ends up being like one of the most magnificent moments uh, of your career. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's cruel and indifferent fate. And you cannot, you cannot assume that you have done it great, nor should you assume that you've been a failure at it. I never trust any director who comes back and says, oh, the dailies were fantastic. That is a great scene. That is a great scene. No, director, you watch it daily, you come back and say, I don't know, my cut, you know, it was in focus. I wanted to bring up three situations and what you were trying to gain from those instances. The first being uh, conversations with Sully uh, leading into your performance in the movie. Certainly with Sully, so with... um, uh, Richard Phillips, uh, for when we did Captain Phillips, and even um, Charlie Wilson when we made the movie uh, uh, Charlie Wilson's War. They were the guys. I was playing them, you know. Uh, and I, I, I said the same thing to them every time I sat down. Look, for, for good or bad, I'm you. I know you probably wanted, you know, Brad Pitt or Kevin Costner where you're stuck with me. Jim Lovell as well. This sort of like began with Jim Lovell on Apollo 13. Uh, and I said, look, um, well, I'm going to say things you never said. I'm going to do things you never did. I'm going to be places you never were. But I want to be as authoritative and actual and as real as possible. I want to carry as much as the DNA of you in that circumstance, or you in that moment, into this movie. Um, so please, please help. And the questions, the, the, the questions I can ask a lot of times are about procedure and behavior and pressures that are not addressed in the movie, but they are the types of things that I have to be able to know and, and, uh, and carry into it. Like for, for example, uh, Apollo 13 with Jim Lovell, that was his fourth trip into space. He had been in outer space and actually he had been to the moon once before in Apollo 8. So that's a type of, that's a type of uh, experience and that's a type of, that's, that's, that, that's, that doesn't have a wow factor to it. There, were, there was a different type of dedication for why he was there. And all of those guys, and, and I will, let, let's talk about Sully because, uh, because uh, relatively recently, he had such little time to make that decision, to figure out what he was doing. It was, it was 
It was less than three minutes. He had just taken, and he's not at altitude yet, and all of a sudden he's got absolutely no power. He's flying a dead aircraft. All right. So he could walk me through the specifics over and over again, which he certainly did. And a matter of fact, he was behind me when we flew in a, in a flight simulator. But then you get down earlier on, and I started asking him questions about that deeper sense of knowledge that he had about how an airplane operates. Uh, and there were, there, were, there were countless examples of transponders that, that send signals, but they only send signals every 30 seconds. So they're not actually accurate to the moment. There's, there's procedures that are in the cockpit. Like, this is a great example. We had a scene in, in Sully, written by Todd Kormanicki, that I said, what, what is this book about, you know, Sully buying a tuna sandwich at, uh, at uh, LaGuardia before he goes on? And I said, I, and I apologize. I said, Sully, I'm sorry, but we're going to have you buy a tuna sandwich. And he says, oh, you have to buy a tuna sandwich. And they're expensive at LaGuardia. I wish they were cheaper. And I said, <laughs> so what do you mean? He said, they don't pay us. They don't feed us on the plane. I said, wait a minute. I've seen movies about airlines and the stewardess brings you in a tray. For that. No, they save money. They don't feed us anything on the plane. We bring our own lunch. And I didn't know this, but uh, Sully told me that the moment the plane pulls away from the gate, there is no conversation allowed that is not about the position of the plane and the flight plan. If there's an accident and the FAA listens to the black box and hears you talking about the Knicks game and getting, getting a, going out for good stakes in, uh, in Philadelphia, they, they will say, your mind was not on flying that plane. You were talking about a basketball game. You know what? They, they asked him what, if he had had any candy bars or chocolates prior to going on prior to the uh, to the flight, because that would have that would have that would affected his blood sugars, that would have affected his judgment. So there, knowing that there are these kind of pressures of it, just end up adding to the tapestry of the movie. And when you were uh, in in Castaway or preparing for the role uh, mm -hmm. of a shipwreck victim, you were studying the psychology of people in similar situations. You, you said at some point. Uh, in the latter half of shooting, you lost all sense of when the camera was actually rolling. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because it didn't matter. <laughs> because there, that, that movie was literally about, about physical action. Um, and I don't even recall where the camera was set up. It was just always set up somewhere because what I had to do was I had to lash a wrap together. I had to try to open a coconut. I had to uh, I had to I had to make a fire. I had to climb in or out of a cave. It was just me and the box and the lens and the uh, and the behavior. And you said you almost felt like you were going nuts by the end of it, though. Yeah. And and that also you could actually hear what the volleyball Wilson was saying back to you. Yeah, when 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 Wilson was born, uh, I had dialogue with him, and I heard his I heard his dialogue in my head. Uh, we I did go I did a go crazy because I, I never had a day <laughs> never had a day off I never had a shot off I was never off camera for anything uh, there were, there's literally two close-ups of Wilson the volleyball uh, in the in the movie and I, that's it all the rest of the time it was me I had no other I had no actor to bounce anything off 
the, you know, the crew is there and I, you're, you're going back and forth with them quite a bit uh, and you're doing it. But w- there was no difference between the camera being on and the camera being off. Uh, there was just this odd kind of like silent, silent animation that, uh, inside my head that was going on. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I was filthy. I was dressed in a loincloth. And there's no difference between walking onto the set like that uh, or making a phone call or, you know, getting, getting a cup of tea over at the craft service table and actually being on, being on camera. It was, it was, the whole movie was, the whole movie was like point and shoot. I, I don't even, I don't even recall hearing action and cut. You just kind of like, you just kind of like wander into the frame and wander out. And that's how, that's how we shot the movie. I, I, it was, it could have been very, very undisciplined, but, uh, Bob got what he needed, so thank God. In Forrest Gump, explain uh, the battle with the studio over the cross-country run and why you actually ended up cutting checks yourself, I think. Well, the studio just said, we can't afford it. You're not going to do it. And uh, Bob said, um, yeah, there's no movie. It's too important a part of the movie just to cut. We can make this work. And they said, no, you can't. And it came around to me, and... uh, uh, my, my crack agent said, uh, Bob's going to come talk to you about, about, um, what, what we called it the run, you know, about the run. And I said, why is he talking to me? He's the boss. I'll do whatever he says. This is above my pay grade. And Bob came and he, and, uh, we talked one night, he drove out and he talked to nine. I said, how you doing, Bob? And he said, look, I can't, I can't do that. You you are the only guy in the. You are you are Forrest Gump. You you're the title role in this. There is no movie without you playing him. I need you to be not an actor, not an employee. I need you to be my soulmate. I will open up the cuts, and and talk about every aspect of the post production of this with you, if you will be my my uh, my collaborator and not just my employee. And I said, uh, okay, deal. Okay, let's do that. Now what? And he said, well, this run is going to cost X amount of dollars. And it wasn't cheap. And uh, I said, okay. He said, I, you and I are going to split that amount. And we're going to give it back. Okay, we'll, we'll give you the money back, but you guys are going to have to share the profits a little bit more which the studio said, fabulous, great, okay. <laughs> it was good for us too. But then it happened again later on in the movie. They said, uh, the weather is such that we can't, uh, we can't get the insurance coverage on it. The studio said, so you guys can't shoot. And we said, Bob and I said, oh, we'll cover the insurance. And we did. And so that, it ended up being very easy, very easy after that. And, you know, and Bob, is, Bob was not a... Uh, Bob was not a pushover. We, we shot the first three days on, on that movie. Bob came into me uh, on our third day and he said, hey, look, I know what you're trying to do. I know how nervous you are and I, I know how, how, self, uh, how self-conscious this can be before we get into the groove, but we, we're not going to use any of these first three days because I don't, I don't think you have it. You haven't got the character. And I said, I don't, I don't, you're right. So walk me through this. And he just said, 
don't do so much. Don't try so hard. And it was like, oh, geez, you know, I thought the job was to try as hard as you can. And, and then from that, everything settled down. I mean, it was in a, in a, in a moment's notice. But that's a, that's a type of collaborative process that, you know, it's come about between me and Bob now. We've, we've had some version of that every time we've worked together. And as Bob says, you know, all these movies are minefields. You have no idea if you're doing it well. You don't have no idea if you're, if you're making the right decision or not. You just have to go forward with a, a type of, uh, of faith um, that you have in yourself and, and in each other. Why with Toy Story 4, when you were reading the final lines, uh, did you feel like you were having an out-of-body experience? Oh, yeah, that was something else. Uh, well, understand that we recorded, Tim and I and the others, although I really, I never saw anybody else of the recording sessions for Toy Story. I only ever saw Tim because Tim was coming out while I was going into the studio or he was, he was coming in as I was coming out. We did, we did the first Toy Story 25 years ago. It was in the 90s. We were just, we had come in just to take part in this new brand of animation, a new process of animation in a pretty hip story. And everybody has had a toy that they brought to it real life characteristics. I know I certainly did. And so I thought there was just a beautiful, a beautiful amalgam of, of real, real human emotion by way of the logic of the toys. We were part of some kind of like masterpiece, some sort of like benchmark in the industry and in the art of animation. And we knew it. And you think, well, knock it. Hey, we <laughs> did that. Okay. Glad I was a part of that. When we did the second one, the Disney brass had this whole kind of like formula that said, the thing to do after you have a really big movie is to do a cheaper version of it and just put it out on video because everybody who loved the movie will buy the video. So again, it was Tim and I, and, uh, we were there. Uh, we happened to be at the studio at the same time to, to go in and come out. And I looked at him and I said, uh, this is really good. Isn't it? He said, yeah, you know, Tim is, you know, Tim, ah, yeah, no, this is, this, this is great. And I don't, I don't understand why it's not coming out. I'm, I, 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 I got, I got to talk to Eisner about this thing. This is too good to just throw out on that. I said, well, we ended up both, both communicating to the brass. Uh, both at Disney and at Pixar. And I think, I think, I think John at Pixar, I think they were a little bit frustrated. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, uh, put words in their mouth, but I couldn't quite understand why they weren't, why, why isn't this going to be in the cinemas? Why, why aren't you releasing this as a feature film? Why are you just, why are you just taking the easy money and going to DVD? I understand it'll be profitable. I get that. But the second one, from a script story point of view is as great as the first one was what what's the deal here and uh to to disney's credit they pondered it and they decided to pony up the extra money because it's more expensive then a long time went by till we did the third one and oh my i mean <laughs> that third one made my wife cry so, but now it's been, now it's been coming on like to more than 15 years since we had done the first one. So the question as to whether or not there could be a fourth one, I think was weighed with the responsibility of making a fourth one. I think they, they were saying, we don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the case, but I think we don't know if we can equal the first three 
with a fourth one. And I said, I get that. All right, I get that. But then they came to us and they said, we think we have something. And much like the first one, we, they worked on it. We came in and did some recording. And uh, it, after about the first six months, they took the work that we had done, threw it out, kept only a few pieces of it, and came in and rebuilt it. And that's what had happened on the first one as well. They had done, we had done a whole version of Toy Story 1, and they, th they threw it out and only brought back tiny elements of it, and we completely reconstructed it then. So um, after all that and the better part of 25 years, to know that I was going back into recording Studio B, a uh, very famous room at, uh, at, on the Disney lot. It's where we had begun it. It's where I recorded the first lines as Woody, and it was where we were recording the very last lines as Woody as well. I had a bit of a life flash before our eyes. I, I think we all did. Everybody... You know, Don Richard, Riffles has passed away. Lee Ermey passed away. So many people who were the original voices were no longer there, were no longer part of it. Um, and Tim and I were still there. Tim's got, I still got the same high squeaky voice and Tim's still down there, you know, where he can complain and gripe. Um, and we had compared notes. I said, have you been in for that? Have you recorded the last scene yet? And no, I haven't. Have you been? Da, da, da? And knowing that I was driving in to do it for the last time, I just thought, this, 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 this doesn't happen that often in a career. I mean, every, you always have a last day of a movie. And for some people, they have the last day of a franchise. But the, to the four Toy Story movies were as individual as the Beatles were, you know. John and Paul and George and Ringo were all very different people. Uh, but, they, but together, they were the Beatles. And I, when that, that last day, I actually, I did. I was recording something. It was recording the last, uh, the last lines. And I felt myself rising up, and I saw myself in this in the studio, and uh, that's you know when that that happens, that's 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 one of the great blessings and curses of being an actor. You have to work so hard in order to to defeat the self conscious that you feel as a human being, but then as an artist, you end up seeing yourself as part of this great artistic process, and uh, it's a, it ends up being a spiritual moment. Why were you surprised by the lack of purpose you felt after that? It's like when the kids, you know, when your kids leave home. They've been growing up in the same bedroom all their lives, and now they're gone, and it's not going to be their bedroom anymore. I said to my wife, I said, something grand has finished. We're, we have finished something. And um, not only was there a bit of a post-creative depression that Toy Stories were, the Toy Stories were done, uh, but there was also a, a, a sense of how complete an experience it was. You know, because as an actor, I will say that the hardest physical work I've ever done as an actor has been the recording of those movies, because you, you cannot move. You have no costume to hide in. You have no, you have no motion in order to, to animate uh, the, the, uh, the emotion. You don't get to do that. You have to stay locked in place on microphone and only use your imagination and your voice in order to in order to go there. And I think I've probably recorded half of all the Toy Story movies with my eyes closed. 
because you're you're trying to imagine a, a place to get. COVID-19, you and your wife, Rita, obviously the first two high-profile individuals to come out saying you had it. Uh, you made two comments that I was curious to get you to elaborate on. The first one being, uh, it, it felt like my older brother was holding me down and punching me in the ass. Uh, and then uh, felt like my bones falling apart and made of saltines. Yeah. And I had, the, the, my had, I had bad body aches. Look, here's what we did not have. We did not have spiking fevers. We did not have clouding lungs and we did not have a lack of oxygen in our blood. So we were, we were, we had symptoms, we were ailing, but our lives were not in danger. Um, my wife had very different, she lost her sense of taste and smell. I did not. She had horrible nausea. They were worse than mine, and they lasted longer. I, I, I had body aches that made me think that my, uh, my, my bones were, were breaking up. And uh, when I, that, that story about my brother punching me in the butt, I, it, just, it just seems like everything hurt. I just hurt. To what extent was there any concern at the time just for your lives? Oh, I didn't have any. I never felt as though. Our, our lives were, my life was in danger. Whenever they came in and they would x-ray us a couple of times a day to see what our lungs were, they said, it's fine. Every time they came in to check our temperature, they said, oh, you know, you're okay. You're, you're only at 37, you know, it's centigrade. I, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Um, but they, they, they never said, no, you're fine. You're okay. I, we, I never felt as though we were, you know, we were at, at, at risk of mortality. Your last film release, Greyhound, was supposed to be released in the theaters, yeah. uh, ends up getting released through Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, you had to okay that move. Tell about them coming to you with the idea and your thought process in okaying it. Well, actually, uh, it was my idea. <laughs> I fought for it. And the film was going to come out originally on the 15th of May, more or less for the anniversary of the... Uh, a VE day. I said, okay, that's appropriate. That's, that's nice, a nice marketing tie in. Um, but as COVID came along, it shut down our, shut down our post-production facilities. And so we were going to be late anyway. And then everything shifted and we were going to come out on the 8th of January in business wise, just, we would have come out between Wonder Woman and Top Gun 2. That, well, that was our window we would have been bridging this place that might not have had a lot of fuel to burn in it. Now that's got nothing to do with how great we thought the movie was or how special it was. It had nothing to do with that. It was literally economic concerns from the marketing wing of the entertainment industrial complex. That's worthy of a symposium uh, <laughs> all unto itself. The other, but the bigger thing of it was, was this is that, our movie is done and no one can see it. <laughs> Pardon my language. How, uh, what can we do here? My original thought was to say, everybody is locked down. There was a COVID-19 process that is, that is, we are not going to know how long this pandemic is going to go on. There is fear and there is, there is, there is, um, there's fear and isolation that are going on right now. Let's put this movie on commercial television. So my crack team of experts went to 
uh, all the networks that were interested. I'm talking about CBS and NBC and ABC and said, would you guys like to have this movie? It cost $40 million to make. They couldn't, they couldn't pay $40 million for, for it. They just couldn't. They, they don't have that. They don't have that cash. So the, the next thing was, is like, okay, well, if it's, if it's the other option is, is streaming, um, let's see what the, let's see what the interest there would be and what the window would be to come out because Greyhound there, it's about stasis. It's, 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 it's about, it was, it's about surviving a, a, a long crisis one day at a time, one moment at a time there, there is a thematic element that is, that speaks very much to the, the, the universal pandemic that is COVID-19. And uh, Apple, God bless them, they came along and said, we really want this. And um, they made an offer that, that, that paid for the movie and put it in the black. And there is no guarantee this movie would have been in the black had it been released in the motion picture theaters. How did the experience impact your view of putting future projects on streaming? Well, it's going to work great for some things, and it's going to be uh, uh, perhaps a handicap or a second place for others. You know, um, I think one of the greatest films that I've seen, certainly in the last few years, was actually, I think it's the five-part Chernobyl that was done on HBO. I think it was fantastic. I think there is a place for streaming that is going to be an end in of itself for any number of, diff- of types of films. I think the cinematic experience is irreplaceable for other types of films. There are some films you've just got to see, not just on the big screen, not just with the great sound, but you have to see it in a room with 200 or 600 or 1,200 strangers. So you take part in that cultural uh, uh, collection, cultural moment. Look, I don't want to see Quentin Tarantino's movies for the first time streaming. I want to go to the movie theater and see that the same way. I want to see Chris Nolan's movie on a screen when I the first time, same way I want to see an awful lot of movies for the first time. I want to see it on the big screen if I can, but if they're not going to be there, I might have to just see them for the first time, you know, in a um, screened on a very good TV at, uh, at somebody's house with a, with as good a sound bar as, as they have. And that's just going to be the nature of the beast. You're a passionate historian. I mean, you have produced more content around World War II than most, obviously. Um, what was it about uh, the picture, uh, the famous picture of the young boy in Poland that caused you early on to want to learn everything you could about the Holocaust? Oh, I did not know anything about the Holocaust until I was in fifth grade. I was 10 years old. The war at that time was essentially the stuff of movies and TV shows like combat or something like that. I know that my dad was in the war. He was in the Navy in the Pacific. The moment of finding out about what the Holocaust was, was it, it, it's, it's, it was a rite of passage. It was like a slow, slow motion entry into adulthood. It was um, having a window onto a degree of human behavior that made absolutely no sense to my 10 year old brain. And the photograph is a very famous photograph. It's about uh, very early in the war in Poland. And a, a young, I saw a young boy who was probably my age, who was holding up his hands as he was rousted from, uh, 
from his home in Poland because he because he was a Jew. Um, I'm not saying that that was the moment where I wanted to learn, became a lay student of history, but it was a it was a bit of a crush. It was a bit of a hard hard uh, bitter um, lesson of uh, of of humanity. It slowly became a little bit more of an adult that day. Um, I grew up in Oakland, California. We learned about civil rights. We learned about Martin Luther King. We learned about George Washington Carver. We learned about Rosa Parks. We learned about an awful lot of good news about the progress of uh, civil rights and and uh, race in America. But how is it that at the age of 10 years old, I first learned about the Holocaust and yet had not ever been told about the 1921 event in Oklahoma in which Black Wall Street was burned down by white Oklahomans and 10,000 people were, uh, 10,000 black Americans were ushered to the, to the, to the city limits and, and told to leave. I mean, I, imagine never learning about, never, imagine never learning about the Holocaust. What kind of gap would that be in our, in our sense of uh, world history? And, and without an awful lot of uh, other lessons there, we have gaps in our own sensibility of American history. The World at War TV show, the TV newsreel yeah. footage, yeah. the talking heads, Laurence Olivier, how did that impact you? That was huge uh, for a couple of reasons. One is um, because it really was an, an encyclopedia. It's like staying at home one day and reading an entire encyclopedia about one subject. Part of it was I did not know of the vast scope of the war. It sounds like a stupid thing to say, but World War II covered an awful lot of the globe. I did not, I did not know about so many of the particulars. So historically, I learned a great lesson, but there was something else in there that, was, that, was, that would absolutely knock me out, and that was the presentation, the storytelling, that it was nonfiction, it was talking heads, it was archival footage. It was animation of maps and graphics. And it was riveting from an entertainment perspective. My head sort of exploded as far as what, how you could tell a story. You didn't even have to know the language. You could read the subtitles and get it. Describe the emotion uh, of walking on Omaha Beach and why you were so overcome and what you ended up doing? Well, I was not working that day. You know, we had already made, um, uh, we had shot Saving Private Ryan in Ireland and in England. And it was a very, very tactile experience for all of us. It was an uncomfortable movie to make, but um, we couldn't wait to get to work every day uh, because of uh, no, one had, no one had touched that subject matter in quite a, quite a long time. And we were, we were shooting it from a kind of like under the helmet perspective as opposed to something grander. You know, there's not a lot of big florid speeches in there. There's a bunch of a lot of guys slugging through and running, being scared out of their minds. So after that experience, um, the movie was shooting the, uh, the sequences there. And I lingered. Well, I walked the length, the entire length of, of Omaha Beach from one end to the next. And just knowing everything that had happened there, I got to the very end, and I was wondering if there was going to be any sort of, any sort of sign of of who we had, uh, of who we were, 
at the very end, there, there's memorials that are scattered all along. There's memorials to this outfit, there's memorials to these sailors, there's a memorial to the Canadians. There's memorials all scattered along, and you stop and you read each one. And at the end of it was this plaque on this concrete retaining wall. I'll, I'll butcher what it says, but it said, this is dedicated to uh, the 29th, soldiers of the 29th, and, the, uh, and it said comp companies A, B, and C of the... Uh, Fifth Ranger Battalion, and that was us. We were Charlie Company of the of the Rangers, and to see that there after we had gone through this kind of thing, it was kind of rocked me. Um, made the hair stand up in the back of my head. Then walking back down, back to the <clears throat> very famous uh, cemetery there, I just realized I was in a holy place. And we, had, we were interlopers, of course. We, were the, we, were, we had the audacity and the hubris to think that somehow we could, we could capture some of uh, what that place means in the history of the world. Uh, we did a, it turned out we did a, we sort of did, but at the end of the day, you, all you can do is, uh, all I can do is kind of like bow your head in, in understanding of, uh, you know, the, the great providence that had, that had happened there. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody who has, some some semblance of uh, historical knowledge or even without it can can go to a place like that and they are scattered all over france they're scattered all over all over europe and uh, not take pause there and think what would i have done if i had been a 19 year old kid there on that day uh, i, I want to ask you about uh, your dad um how aware were you of his dreams uh back when you know, he, he was a young man, which I, I think was to go to college and then move to Australia as a writer? Well, my dad um, got a raw deal when he was a very young man because he happened to, be, he happened to witness the, death, the, the murder of his father in a fight um, between, a, he was eight or nine or 10 years old, and a hired hand killed his father in the barn of the farm that they were growing up in Willows, California. He was one of four kids and he was the only one there. And he was broken by that experience. He had to go and testify as a kid three times, you know, with the lawyers and the judge and the flag and you do you hereby solemnly swear. Um, and it was, a, it was a contentious fight. The, the man was acquitted uh, by, you know, self-defense, because it was a fight. But his father was killed, and he witnessed that. How do you think that uh, uh, affected him? Oh, um, it, it, it ruined him. It robbed him of, uh, it robbed him of a carefree life. Um, it robbed him of a, of a, of, of a sense of, of, of uh, fairness in the world. It was a, it was just a, it was a black mark of injustice and unfairness that landed squarely on, on his very young shoulders. It wasn't right, and he saw it. I don't know what his relationship with his dad was. He never spoke about it very much. His mother was a, his mother was a very religious woman, and he didn't buy the religion at all, and he, he was a black sheep of the family. But he was a black sheep of the family is because, because of this thing that had happened, this... Uh, this tragedy, um, this scar that uh, he ended up carrying around with him for a long time. I don't know if he ever communicated any kind of great joy that he got from anything that happened to his life until 
he married my stepmother. You asked about you know what he wanted to do. Yeah, my dad wanted to write. He had to, he had great uh, great artistic uh, desires, but you know, life life didn't deal him the cards in order to go off and pursue it. Other other things came along. How did your role in Nothing in Common impact your communication with your dad? Well, that was a big deal because that was uh, Gary Gary Marshall. Uh, that was a moment of faith from him. In which he said, "Look, we're going to do a we're going to do a movie here, and you know it's not just jokes. This isn't just jokes. We got to see you. We got to see you and your father not get along and discover each other like that." My dad was alive then, and and uh, uh, we were uh, we're beginning to see each other a lot more. And I told my dad at some point, I "said Look, Dad, I'm doing this movie with Jackie Gleason, and he's playing a guy who's sick, and you you were sick, you might." He's got diabetes and you've got, you know, you got no kidneys. So I just, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of you and me in this movie. I just want you to know that before you see it. And, uh, you know, I think he appreciated it and that there was a place there, there was a place for common ground and it turned out to be in a movie called Nothing in Common. To, to what extent did that cause you to have any conversations with him that up to that point you'd always been wanting to have? You know, I didn't burden my dad in that way. I didn't say, come on, dad, you know, what's the scoop? But what I did do was I, I listened for, for whatever, whatever would come out. Say the stories of him growing up, not so much about the loss of his dad, but growing up on a farm and the type of labor that he did. I think the, the prior to nothing in common, um, when I got my first job as a professional actor and I was going to leave California and go to Ohio to work the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival as an equity actor, as a, as a professional guy, um, I, took, I got together with my dad. I took him to the, to the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, a place that I had gone to a million times by myself. And... Uh, at intermission, I said, uh, "What do you think, Dad?" He said, "Well, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, quite inventive. Something else." I said, "Well, I'm going off to to work as an actor in a repertory theater, and I, I don't think I'm coming back to L.A. Uh, excuse me, I don't think I'm coming back to California after this. I'm going to go to wherever this is going to take me." But he couldn't quite fathom anybody in, in the Hanks family getting up on stage and saying. Uh, give me your, let me have your attention, please. This was not in his, he, that's not in his DNA. He wasn't, he didn't think it was stupid. He didn't say, oh, for crying out loud, get a real job. No, just the opposite. He kind of like said, uh, well, I think that if you, that's what you want to do, then I think, I think that's what, then that's what you should do it. The, 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 the great thing of it was I was able to get established. Um, you know, the, I got the TV show. I was on Bosom Buddies. He got to see me every week. And then later on when I, we got was able to get the films, uh, and the first time uh, when I was nominated uh, for uh, for big in the Academy Award, he and my stepmom came down, and we all went together. So he got to go to the he got to go to the broadcast. So he was able to take in, you know, this kind of like grander aspect of uh, his kid making good enough headway in it. Uh, in a, in a realm that was completely alien to him. Your dad and your mom divorced when you were five. Uh, I think you moved 
10 times by oh, a the time times. you were 10, a five million. different cities, you and your two siblings, uh, you and two of your siblings were with your dad, your other sibling was with your mom, but that also you know, involved changing schools, new friends. Uh, how did all of that, you think, affect you as a kid? Well, I, I the different the three of us all reacted very differently. My older brother was very shy and he didn't do well. I loved it. <laughs> I kind of dug it. Um, I, I like going into a new circumstance. I, I think I learned skills of, uh, you know, sort of like seducing a room. I, I never walked into a, a new social circumstance and felt clumsy or odd or, or shy. I came in kind of like looking, bopping around, looking, looking for action. Now understand I was the youngest. I was always the youngest in the house. And when my older sister and older brother were there, you know, they ran the roost and I was just, I was kind of like the mascot there. I just, I, I hadn't, nothing was expected of me. I had no responsibilities. Um, I just, you know, I took care of myself and flittered around and knew what time it was by what was on TV and, learned how to make, you know, incredibly horrible lunches and breakfasts for myself, which is part of one of the reasons I developed type two diabetes as an adult. But I was never, um, uh, uh, the, the amount of, t the, the worst thing I could say about how I grew up was that uh, that was very confused at some times by what was going on. But I was never intimidated. I was never, I never felt uh, at a loss. There were sometimes um, maybe uh, uh there was a degree of loneliness because at really no one, I, I kind of like fell through the cracks and didn't really have a, adults per se that were taking care of me, but I was not abused and I always had a key to the house and uh, I could always drink all the milk that was in the refrigerator, whether anybody was home or not. So I actually, it actually was probably the perfect, you know, background for a guy whose job it is to put on clothes that are not his and pretend to be somebody that he's not. Um, I was, I was, I felt content in a classroom full of people uh, on a bus uh, coming back from school or walking home all by myself. Something was going on, always going on inside my head that uh, made the day interesting. I, I don't ever recall being bored. I don't ever recall being at a loss for time. I, Something, something cool was always going on, if not with, with other people, certainly in my head. All I needed was a couple of army men and a major Matt Mason or, you know, a, a free hockey stick. And I, 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 had a, I, had, I had nothing but entertainment in front of me. In addition to a mom, you had two stepmoms. Um, explain the situations where you would basically be told, these are your new brothers and sisters, only well, that to, happened, you know, like, like last that, that, minute. That, Leave them and never well, see yeah. them again. Well, but you know, Dad, uh, my dad went off to to uh, um, uh, Reno to get a the six week divorce from my mom, and he came and got us, and we ended up living with another lady who was also there to get a six week divorce, and she had five kids of her own. So for a couple two and a half years there, there were like eight of us in the house, and it was wild. I mean, everything conceivable happened there that was both hilarious and kind of like. Uh, and a lot of fights, a lot of arguments. It was crazy, man. But it was also, you know, I, what did I know? I was six, seven, eight, nine years old. There was always somebody around, and there was some, some was, some show was happening, you know, uh, every minute. Did I, I felt as though I certainly got lost in the shuffle there a number of times. Um, could have used a little bit more, you know, firm hands on my shoulders and a and a little bit of guidance. But uh, 
my lord, uh, I, that I, 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 it, it probably would be flipped to say, son, these are your new, these are your new siblings. Um, that happened once uh, when we first moved to Reno, but then we all we all got to know each other pretty dang quick. The other thing that happened though is, and that this was odd, and this was moments of confusion where we just up and left. Dad came in one day, something had happened, and we had packed up the car and we were gone. And we didn't see anybody of those people for another six or seven months. What's going on, Dad? Uh, we're just, we're, time to go. We're gonna, I'm taking another job. You know, like that kind of stuff would go on. And that would, that would be perhaps just as, uh, just as memorable. But, you know, it, it's a, there's nothing... Uh, everybody was involved in, you know, mo mo so many families were like that. And again, uh, there was never any malevolence involved. It was always kind of like, all right, <laughs> all right, here's where we live. If you've, if, you know, by the time you're 10 years old, if you've lived in 10 different houses, it's not an intimidating process to go and move into another. One. Why is it you still cannot eat tomato soup? <laughs> you have done your research. <laughs> Because um, we were tasks, tasked with making our own lunches and dinners. And a open can of Campbell's tomato soup on a pan on a range turned up high boils over very quickly. <laughs> and if, if you're fighting with your sister and trying to watch a, you know, an episode of Leave it to Beaver, you kind of forget that that pot's on the stove. And the smell of burnt tomato soup. I mean, thank God they didn't have uh, uh, smoke detectors in apartments back then. We would have set one off every third day. <laughs> uh, uh, something was burning in our in our kitchen. And the smell of tomato soup and then trying to clean it off with steel wool before dad got home. Uh, yeah, that's a bad vibe. How often would you go to plays and movies by yourself growing up? Oh my lord, that was great! I mean, I, the the education that I got in in the in the in an audience from that place was priceless. Doubly so because I was alone and I was taking it all in by myself. I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't on a date. I wasn't goofing off. I drove over by myself. I bought myself a sandwich. I will say that sometimes in line, I had to put off the advances of some older gentlemen that were very interested in the young man who was coming to the theater by himself. Um, but I even, I even understood the, the social, social aspects of that. Um, and it was, it was incredibly important. I, I, the, the, and, and I still do. And then when you're 20, you're cast in a play that's guest directed by Vincent Dowling. Uh, yeah. What did he say in that first rehearsal that, kind of tied everything together for you. He said, you know, work, work in the theater is more fun than fun. It is. It's more work in the theater is more fun than fun. And I thought that is exactly how I feel. I would rather be in a play than do anything with my life. I'd rather be in a play than go skiing. I'd rather be in a play than go to a baseball game. I'd rather, I'd rather be in a play than go to the movies. I'd rather be doing this than anything else. So then he said, all of the great plays are about loneliness. We're all fighting. Hamlet is about loneliness. And that was, uh, it could very well have been the same night he said, work in the theater is more fun than fun. I seem to remember it might, as, might have been. That actually unlocked a door of, of uh, what, what my personal connection was 
to an awful lot of this stuff. Why was I so intrigued by it? Why did I keep coming back again and again and again? And it, he answered the question for me. It's because I was seeing people who I related to in their battle against, against loneliness. And I think, he was, I think he was right. All the great stories are still about our desire as human beings not to be alone. Before you found success, uh, what were the ways in which, the, the smart ways in which you'd go about saving money? Well, I was not profligate, you know, I didn't blow a lot of money. I was not, I, I didn't have any vices. I didn't have any bad habits. I could not sleep at night if I knew that next week or next month was going to be uh, be at risk. So I, I, I saved money. I, 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 didn't, I didn't spend money stupidly. When we were down to uh, living on a serious budget though, and it was time to go to like do a week of grocery shopping, we'd kind of like imagine, okay, we, I think we could, we have $45 here. Let's, what can we do for $45? And anytime we bought something, I rounded up the cost, you know, and it never, never failed to make me feel good because we'd have a, a week's worth of groceries and I'd still have the, like, I'd get three bucks back from my 40. So we, we could do it all for $42. There's a moment where you're at a chemical bank branch in New York, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, waiting to deposit an out-of-state check. What do you remember from that? Uh, well, okay, Here's, this is a pretty good story. You ready for this? We were in New York, I'd, I had sold the car and a few of things, and I had a bankroll and put the deposits down on a pretty dark and dingy apartment there in Hell's Kitchen. So I was waiting for my first unemployment check to come in. And so I, I was going from having $25 in the bank to having close to close to $500 in the bank. That, that, that's a big day. And I wanted to draw some money off of that in order to, uh, in order to get, <laughs> in order to buy groceries. And uh, they, they insisted on waiting for the check to clear. And it was a, a state, it was a check from the state of Ohio. And I, 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 I'm not a contentious guy, but I did, I did cause a stink. I said, look, I got a kid who needs groceries. This check is from the state of Ohio. It's good. And the bank manager was very pissed off at me. And he said, he, he let me write a check for like, like 50 bucks, you know, off the thing. The bigger thing about that, that was from a chemical bank. That bank, that space on the second floor of that building right now was converted into a Bubba Gump shrimp company, shrimp restaurant. So the place, so there you go. There's, there's, there's cruel fate, odd fate right there. Set the scene where you move from New York to LA uh, and you end up needing to ask your producers to borrow money. We had made the pilot for Bosom Buddies, Peter Scolari and I. Um, the show got sold. Uh, I left, we, we, we tried to sublet our apartment in New York and we went to Los Angeles uh, with the understanding that we were gonna go, we were gonna go into production uh, in July. But the actor's strike of 1980 came along and shut that down and I ran out of funds. I couldn't afford rent in both LA and uh, New York. So I informed the, uh, the producers 
uh, that I'd been in LA and I said, oh, look, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't want to screw things up, but I, I have to go back to, to New York because of the strike. And they said, well, why didn't you ask us for an advance? That's allowed. I, I, I wouldn't know how to do that. Hey, I haven't done any work for you guys, but, but pay me a few thousand bucks. And they said, of course we do that for you. That, that was Tom Miller and Bob Boyette, their kindness and their largesse made it possible for me and my family to uh, to be secure in Los Angeles. And to this day, if I ever run into Bob, I always get down on, on one hand and uh, one knee and I kiss his hand and thanks because that, I mean, it's not often you can say somebody saved your life. Bob Boyette saved, saved my life. Your kids, you've uh, formed your own. And I read in interviews you did many years back where you, you talked a little bit about this. But you've since obviously had a ton of success, financial success with that. Um, how, how did you work to avoid your success not dampening motivation or passion for your children? We were always able to separate the professional responsibilities to, from the private ones. There are times you have to be you know, in, in public, and there's times that you shouldn't be in public, and we've always when the kids were growing up, we, we protected that very, very specifically. I never did interviews from my home. No photographers ever came, took pictures of us in, in our home. We always went somewhere else. And if I wasn't working or if I wasn't promoting something, I was, I was just around the house. Um, not as much as I should have been because I worked a lot and always had a lot of responsibilities. But, uh, you know, my older kids uh, grew up when I was just kind of like a a guy working, not so much uh, uh, anybody in, in the real public eye. My younger kids, it was different for them. But early on, you know, when they're when they're little kids, you just you just try to just to be a guy who drives the carpool and picks them up after school and uh, is around as much as possible. It's not easy, you know. There's a you don't win all the time, and you can't avoid uh, some aspects of being in the public eye when you'd rather not be, but. Uh, if you work at it and you always just, you know, you, you don't play into it too much. If you don't make it seem more important than, uh, than it is, uh, you know, you can do okay for, for long enough. Well, your son, Colin, who's a, a successful actor, um, once said, uh, he left it up to me. He didn't help me. I'm so grateful he did that because it made me a very grounded a very down-to-earth individual who takes nothing for granted. Explain what, what the thinking was with that and kind of his, uh, with regards to his pursuit of the profession. With um, two of my kids, Colin and, uh, and also uh, Chester, um, I saw them, I saw them on stage the same age that I was when I thought, this is fun, I'd like to do more of this. And it was in, it was in school. And when they do it, there's just no denying that. And I told them both, you know, I said, you could do this if you want. You know, if you have the perseverance, you've got, you've got the goods. What I was able to do for both my kids was give them that first job on a movie. Colin was in That Thing You Do, and he had a line. And so he got his... Screen Actors Guild card. Chester was in Larry Crown. He had a line. He got his Screen Actors Guild card. And after that, it's up to them. 
if you can't you can't keep giving them jobs because then the only jobs they have is under under your auspices. So everything else is their pursuit. No one can do it for you. No one can hand you anything. They can literally hand you a fishing pole and say, get fishing. That's it. But I don't want to discount how impossible it is to get that first job that gives you a Screen Actors Guild card. That is the leg up I was able to give both those kids. But they had to want to do it. You know, they had to say, I'll, I will take this and then go on from there. Thanks very much. And they both did. Colin's pursuit of that, it, it's blown me away. Sometimes I land on things that he did, and I just said, when did you do this for? Oh, I said, oh, I did this for a friend of mine, blah, blah, blah. Didn't even, didn't even know he was, didn't even know he was up to it. How did you learn how to be a dad when the example you had, uh, you know, acted probably differently than you wanted to be as a father? It was not a uniform process. I have four kids. Uh, Colin is in his 40s. My daughter Elizabeth is in her 30s. My son Chester just turned 30, and my son Truman is uh, 24. I was a different dad for each one of those guys. I didn't know what I was doing with the, with the older kids. Sort of began to figure it out with, uh, with my daughter. I was married to, uh, to, to Rita. We've been married for 32 years, and we worked hard. We, you know, we wanted to have, we worked at having our two boys. And so by the time there, I was just did, had a different understanding of what the of what the job was. You know, part of it goes along with what decade you're working in. Uh, I was in my 20s with my first kids, and I was still just trying to figure out who I was and how I was going to to pay the rent. I don't. I wasn't the same father for them as I was uh, elsewhere. You know, I, I learned through a process of uh, elimination of learning what not to do as opposed to what to do as a dad. You said, you know, on kind of the, the first marriage front once, uh, d divorce brought back bad feelings from the past. You were consumed by guilt. Food didn't taste good. You couldn't sleep. Um, and that, that you couldn't shake the feeling that no matter what you did, your kids would feel abandoned uh, like, like you did. Um, what do you remember from that time? horribly painful time, fraught with uh, emotion and bad feelings and um, uh, the, the, you know, the failures that you go, you know, I thought, oh, I, I, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't be a worse, couldn't be a worse father and I couldn't be a worse human being. I remember, I remember all those feelings of as though I had, uh, I had cursed innocent beings with my own failings. I think the job as a parent, what the things I've learned, is to try to guarantee a carefree life for your children for as long as possible. They should not be burdened with the cares of the world until they can handle them. And I felt uh, in the course of being their divorced single guy dad that I was, I was burdening them with cares that they, they, that they didn't deserve to have to carry. At the time, you were in, uh, I think, therapy three times a week. You said, oh, yeah. you, you said, I was sad, confused, emotionally crippled. I guess the house of cards has to fall in before you start to figure things out. Uh, yeah. How so? Well, I felt like I could, was a complete abject total failure, and everything I thought was working was, was actually not working. It's a place that everybody comes to in their life for one reason or another. You know, I would go off and talk to somebody and say, what? What have I done wrong? And they would say, well, what do you think you've done wrong? Why am I so unhappy? Well, tell me about your unhappiness. And you work through that till you figure out that 
you know, number one, you have been an idiot, but number two, you're, you're no longer an idiot. It's human nature to go through these kinds of, not just depressions, it's not, just a, not necessarily a clinical thing, but you just go through dark times. You just go through, you just go through moments where you think, oh man, I'm fucked, and I'll never be anything other than just like this guy that I am now, but you learn. The aid that you can get from just asking these questions of yourself uh, and verbalizing it to somebody who's, who's really a really good student of human nature can help you get through some very tough times. Now, sometimes, it, sometimes it's, a, it's a, you know, a priest at the church that you trust. Sometimes it's a, it's a really good friend. I've had versions of all those things that have, have been the type of people that have said, you know, you're not a horrible person, and this, this will pass. You just got to have a little bit of faith and the goodness that is inside yourself. Then you end up marrying into uh, an old world family type structure, as you called it, uh, where people actually wanted to be together. You know, when I met my wife, um, Rita, I had gone. I had never been part of a full time large structure of a of a family that had like a kind of like heritage. So I ended up getting, I got this kind of like solid dose of a normalcy that had been completely absent for me. Uh, prior to that, it was about moving. And prior to that, life was about work. And when I met her, it was like she had deep roots. I immediately felt, felt comfortable. I immediately felt like I was with people who were interested. And you were able to construct a number of things in the movie Philadelphia apparently because of your relationship with Rita, right? I would say that getting married and, and having an established family and just being a guy in the neighborhood was something that I always thought was going to happen, but it never had. And then when it did, it made so much sense that it ended up freeing me up, I think, to ponder other aspects of what I do for a living and of what that artist that I wanted to be. One of the things about Philadelphia that was both that it had in its pocket and that it also was opposite from so much else of the, of the cultural discussion about being gay in America and contracting AIDS is that we were, you know, uh, Andy, who I played, was part of a family and part of a monogamous relationship. And that was all he knew and that's all he wanted from life. And yet so much of what the, the, the gay community was saying, that does not, that does not reflect who we are. And both things were correct. It didn't. And he was not a certain type of person. He was, a, he was a family man. What Ron wrote, Ron Nicewater, and what Jonathan was going for in that was, we, we want you to be our brother. We want you to be somebody's friend. We want you to be that coworker and that, then that, that brother, that, that cousin that is gay and has AIDS. And I, the, the, I get around to what your question is, is what I was, what I, what I recognized the first time that they were talking about it when Ron and, and Jonathan, Ed, Ed Saxon, the, the producer, when they came to me, I kind of said, uh, oh, I know why you guys want me. I know why, because I'm a family man. That's right. I'm not a renegade. I'm not a hell's angel. I'm not a hellion. I'm not a party boy. I'm a family man. And I could be gay and I could have AIDS. And I got to tell you, I talked to guys who died in the course of making the movie and when the movie came out. And uh, they, were, they were family men, too, in their way. 
So we we ended up touching on on something that was I I I, I compared it in a lot of ways to a, the movie like uh, Gentleman's Agreement in the in the early 1950s was about being Jewish, um, in a way that was like, is that really an issue? Well, it turned out, yeah, it was. Sports. Why have you said baseball is a metaphor for life? Well, I've read that from Tom Boswell for crying out loud. Uh, all the great, all the great baseball writers have uh, said some some version of it. Baseball is pastoral, you know. If you see it in its best circumstances, it's God's game on God's grass under God's own light. You know, guys who should not be great at what they do are great at what they do, and some people that have all the talent in the world still can't hit a curveball no matter how hard they try because it can last as long as eternity itself, as long as still the, the, the score is tied in the 427th inning, <laughs> the, game's, the game is not over, and no one has won and no one has lost yet. It's a rumination on the, on the poetry of life as opposed to the prose of living. Life is mysterious and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I will tell you this, if you're a baseball fan like I am, I have seen something unique that I've never seen before happen at every game I've ever been to. Some fluky thing happens. I saw a triple play once <laughs> in the Seattle uh, Superdome in the Mariners, a triple play that was started by Ken Griffey Jr., who got the right jump on the ball and hit the cutoff man. It was beautiful. I saw Willie Mays' last at bat as a New York Met at the Oakland Coliseum, A's defeated the Mets for the World Series. I was at the game where Pete Rose had tied Ty Cobb's record, was going to be coming up in the uh, top of the next inning in Wrigley Field, but the game was called on account of darkness, so no one got to see it, and he broke the record uh, in the next game at the, uh, in Cincinnati. And I saw in Yankee Stadium, Tom Seaver win his 300th game pitching for the Chicago White Sox. So I've, 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 seen, I've seen some damn good baseball games just by being a guy who had a ticket. You were a Dodgers season ticket holder. Tell me about taking the typewriter yeah. to a game occasionally. I like to score the game, uh, and I have my own kind of like uh, system. Uh, when you score the game, you keep the game. And by the way, uh, my teams are... Yeah, I like the Dodgers, but I love the Giants, the Oakland A's, Cleveland Indians, uh, and go ahead. They can change that name. I won't have any problem with them. They could come up with something other than that. I'll go see any game anywhere uh, and be uh, totally happy. I take a typewriter sometimes just to keep up a running commentary, so I'm not just reduced to a couple of dots and a couple of letters in a little, in a little box. You can wax a little more eloquent on a, <laughs> on a typewriter. And guess what? You go back. I have those games, you know, five or six pages stapled together. They're in a box somewhere. What was the inside joke with you and your brother and blasting caps? <laughs> wow, you have done your research. There was a public service message that was put together by some government agency that at the, in, the, in the 1960s, there was so much housing construction going on, I guess somewhere, that there were these things called blasting caps that they used to detonate, I think, explosives to move Earth. Does that make sense? And for some reason, they got Willie Mays to stand 
and read a cue card on camera that was about children avoiding blasting caps. And they played it so often that my brother and I memorized the, uh, the copy. And Willie Mays has a very distinctive cadence in his vocal delivery. These are blasting caps. Remember now, don't touch them. They're very dangerous. Remember now, don't touch them. They're blasting. So save your arms, save your legs, and save your eyes. We said that over and over now. And we still say it to each other when we're at dinner now. Be careful of that fork now. Remember now, don't touch that fork. Save your arms, save your legs, and save your eyes. How about fondest memory from a league of their own? Mine? Yeah. Oh, not working, but going to the ballpark every day. That, that was it. My son Colin was with me. We were in Chicago. They were shooting the tryout sequences at Wrigley Field, but I didn't work. I, that was just the women. It was before my character, Jimmy Dugan, came into the movie. But we were there for rain cover in case it rained. They were going to shoot some scenes that I was in. So my son and I would go to Wrigley Field in the morning, run around the field, climb out all throughout. the. We climbed up into the, uh, into the announcer's booth. We sat up on the deck. We climbed up into the scoreboard and looked out the scoreboard windows down at everybody. That movie was a blast to make because we got to play baseball all day long. I played baseball all day long. And a bunch of the, a bunch of the women... Uh, particularly on the other teams, were crackerjack ball player, and all we all we did we took infield practice, and then we we shag flies in the in the outfield, and we do some more bait, you know, we do pitching, we did all kinds of stuff. We just played baseball all day long. It was great, and then we made a good movie on top of it. How do you view the Raiders? Oh, I was so pissed off for the longest time. How can they leave Oakland? You know, to me, I, I'm going to call them the Las Vegas Oakland. To live in Oakland and be a kid at the time of the American Football League and the advent of the Raiders and when Marsh, uh, Marcus Allen played for them and oh my, oh my Lord, to be a Raider fan at that time was to walk proud. We were, we were, we felt like gods. Daryl Monica, George Blanda and uh, Tom Flores as the coach. It was, it was Jim Plunkett for crying out loud. The Raiders were absolutely beautiful. It's sad that, you know, the stadium's no good and the economics of baseball have changed and Oakland this and that and moving off to Las Vegas. <clears throat> um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how much of a Las Vegas Raiders fan I'm going to be, but <clears throat> I will be. A, I hope they do well. There's something beautiful about the silver and black, but it's never going to be quite the same because they're not, they're not in Oakland. I heard at least at one point you were big into surfing, and I had uh, somebody uh, tape a question uh, for you that I'm, okay. I'm going to play for you. Tom Hanks, Kelly Slater here. How are you? Kelly! Graham sent me a message and said to give you a question, so here it is. I used to know Brian Grazier a bit, and uh, we had a bunch of mutual friends, and we talked about surfing uh, quite a lot, and he told me you made him buy a house at Malibu near the beach just so you guys could surf together and have competition. So I'm wondering where your surf level is at these days and if you're still getting the water. Kelly Slater, holy smokes, living legend, Kelly Slater. Oh my God, oh Lord. That's like having, that's like having Joe DiMaggio ask you a question about playing three flies up when you were a kid. This is unbelievable. Kelly Slater, okay, let me, I'm gonna show you something. I don't know if you can see this. Yep. Wait a minute. Hold on. I'm going to move 
Oh, wait a minute. Where is it? Hold on. <laughs> I'm trying to put, there it is. Hold on. I don't know if you can see this right here. See that? Yeah. I have a vicious scar I have in my calf from Brian Grazer running over me on his surfboard and his fins sliced me open to the point that I had to go to the clinic there in, in, in Malibu <laughs> and get 47 stitches on the inside and the outside. And my calf muscle has always been too short ever since then uh, because I made the mistake of surfing with Brian Grazer. He was a short board surfer. I was a, I'm a longboard surfer. Now, now I just do paddle boards. I haven't, I haven't surfed uh, in waves in a long time, but paddle boards work. Um, Brian, I did not tell Brian to get that house. He already had that house in Malibu, but, uh, uh, that I did learn how I did first learn how to do it out there. And, and now, now a, a, a board cannot be long enough or big enough for a guy like me. Slow, easy. If I could get, if I could get a 1968 Buick to float, that's what I would surf on now. <laughs> the bigger, the, the more flotation, give me a paddle and, and I'm found with that that Kelly Slater would even ponder me to be a, a, a surfboard. You just made my night. That, that is fantastic. What do you enjoy about surfing? Well, when I do it, what I like about paddleboarding is, is uh, the glide. I'll never sit in a kayak again. I'll never go canoeing if I can have a, a, a paddleboard to stand up on. It is a type of freedom. And when you can get, you know, look, I'm a horrible surfer and I will, I will, I will pitch out at, at the sign of any kind of like turbulent wave coming my way. But if you can get a little something and you can get going and you can, uh, you can land in that curl just a little bit and it's nothing but mother nature that is propelling you, um, it, you, f you feel like you're flying like Superman. So I wanted to talk to you uh, uh, about politics. You've obviously gotten involved in Joe Biden's. Uh, election campaign. Why have you called this the most important election of our lives in, in the history of America? Well, I don't, I, I, you don't have to pay too much attention to the news to realize the, you know, the great divisions that's, that's going on. I think the United States of America is going through a great reckoning on a number of uh, the facets of what it means to be an American. Um, you know, in the past, there were uh, there were Republicans that were that I never I never questioned that their their sincerity or their belief in the American system. Uh, and I think with the administration the way it's been, I think I, I'm I'm not I'm not sure the man has has took his oath seriously to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Um, you give a guy a fair shot for as much as you can, and I have you know I have great faith in the uh, in our system of government. But I believe that uh, I have witnessed from my perspective is that there is fear and outrage and xenophobia has been commoditized. It's, become, it's turned into uh, the bigger trademark for how, uh, for how America um, puts itself out in the world. I, I think the United States of America is the, great, is the promised land, the, mo the closest the world has ever gotten to a true promised land. And I think that uh, this election is about uh, whether or not we, the people of the United States, are going to um, promote the general welfare and provide for the common defense, 
and secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and for our posterity. We need a brand of guidance and we need a brand of common sense and we need a brand of selflessness that uh, has not been on display for for this administration. I want to talk to you, though, uh, about uh, a, kind of a, a powerful moment in, in your life, was, which was actually speaking at President Obama's inauguration in 2009. What do you recall from that moment? Well, we were all on the, on the cusp of a, 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 without a doubt, a historic moment in the history of our republic, simply because a black man was going to be living in the White House. This was, this was huge. This was a thing that we always anticipated was going to come around at some point, maybe even become commonplace, that it wouldn't be such a historic uh, uh, moment of, uh, of notoriety. I was asked before the, uh, in the ceremonies before the uh, um, uh, inauguration to read the great you know, Lincoln portrait. To be in Washington, D.C. at a time when the first black president uh, for the country was being uh, was going to be able, was going to be taking office. To me, it was as monumental as an evolutionary place in the country in the republic, equal to a, a man finally landing on the moon, equal to a, 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 a victory being declared in uh, in in World War II. You sort of remember where you were and and realize that a Rubicon had been crossed. We were a different country as of that moment. I'm not sure how many times you spent the night at the White House, but I, I think the first time was in the Clinton administration. Uh, you were invited by President Clinton to spend the night. Tell me about what you recall from that. Uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, there, was, there, was an op there was always a lot of people when the Clinton, in the Clinton White House. Uh, <clears throat> and so part of, look, there's a no smaller part of, holy cow, I'm in the White how this is a big, big deal. I will tell you there was there was one time that was that I was we happened to be in the White House. Didn't spend the night. Uh, we had been me and me and the family had been in uh, Washington D.C. We were dedicating the National World War II Memorial on at its opening. George George W. Bush was president. I sat next to him and we chit chatted a little bit during the. Uh, during the ceremony that was out on the mall. And uh, we had arranged, a, my, my younger kids uh, had not been in the White House ever, so we were able to arrange for a tour. And it was a Sunday, so it was a day off. And so when, they, when he was gonna come down and I guess go to the gym or something, we were sort of like asked to go stand in one of the other rooms. But my wife had gone to the restroom. She'd gone and she had come out and she was walking down the hallway. And uh, I hear her out there and she says, well, hello, Mr. President. And uh, President uh, uh, George W. Bush said, well, hello, who are you? And she says, well, I'm, I'm Rita Hanks. She used Rita Hanks then. And uh, we were just here, and I'm here with the family. Said, oh, yeah, really? Well, where are they? So we stepped out, and the president was in his, uh, he was in his, his dress for the gym. He was getting on the treadmill. He was in his running shorts and stuff. We talked a little bit, <clears throat> introduced him to my kids, and it was so funny. I got breathless for a second, you know? And... Uh, he asked, uh, he asked my son, I said, so, hey, hey, what's it like? Uh, what's it like having a famous father? What's it like having a famous dad? And my son said, well, it's, you know, there's advantages and there's disadvantages. <laughs> yeah, good answer. I know a little something about that. Hey, come on, I want to show you something. And, and uh, George W. Bush took us, took us around. We went outside. We walked around the lawn. He showed us the trees that the presidents had planted. 
he found a dead crow, dead blackbird on the grass. And he said, oh, oh, that ain't good. That happened. We see that on the ranch all the time. And he picked it up and he threw it in the bushes. And then we went into the, through the Rose Garden, we went into the Oval Office, the back way. It was really, it was really a, a, a fantastic day that happened totally by incident. And in all, anybody who's been to the, to the White House more than, more than once remembers every time they've walked through those, those doors. And there's, there's always some that stick out, and that was certainly one of them. Thank you very much for doing this. I, uh, so, hey, Graham, so, you're, you're, you're very, well, uh, very well versed. You probably have done way too much uh, research for a guy like me, but I appreciate it. I enjoyed the talk. Thanks for listening to my chat with Tom Hanks. To see more from our time together, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Before you go, we're eager to get your thoughts on this podcast, so please make sure to leave a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.